Hello, and welcome back to In Summation. I'm your host, Paul Townsend, and this episode is dedicated to an extremely troubling, confusing, and salacious affair. If you listened to the previous episode, we discussed the George Zimmerman trial in Seminole County, Florida. Today, we're going to be staying in Florida, home to all sorts of bizarre and unsettling occurrences. Today's case involves the tragic death of a child, the claim of extreme familial dysfunction and abuse as a defense, and the desire for a party girl lifestyle as motive for murder. This is the people of the state of Florida versus Casey Marie Anthony. The fact pattern here is just so crazy, and I think it's safe to say that everyone remembers it as being crazy. But in doing the research on this case, I realized that I really had no idea just how outlandish this whole situation really was. So without further ado, let's dive right into it with some background on the Anthony family. The defendant in this case, Casey Marie Anthony, was born March 19th, 1986. At the age of 19, Casey had a daughter, Kaylee Marie Anthony, born August 5th, 2005. Casey has for years now refused to reveal the identity of Kaylee's father. Casey and Kaylee lived with Casey's parents, George and Cindy Anthony, in Orlando, Florida, until June 9th, 2008. Casey at that point took Kaylee and moved in with her ex-boyfriend, a man by the name of Ricardo Morales. A week later, on June 16th, 2008, Kaylee is last seen alive at the Anthony residence. Casey brought Kaylee to visit George and Cindy, and apparently they leave a little before 1 p.m. Now, on June 20th, Casey Anthony, then 22 years old, is photographed partying at the Fusion nightclub and participating in a hot body contest. A few days later, her car is towed from a parking lot where she's left it, and she gets a tattoo on July 2nd, which says Bella Vita, which translates to beautiful life in Italian. Her parents then pick up her car from the impound on July 15th. Now, the reason that these facts, although minor, are actually very important is that everyone in this case, including Casey Anthony, will agree that Kaylee Anthony died prior to June 20th. Obviously, there was an entire trial about how Kaylee Anthony died, but there is no dispute in this case that Casey Anthony was in a hot body contest, getting beautiful life tattoos, and abandoning her car all after her nearly three-year-old child had passed away. Now, regardless of any conclusions you may draw about how Kaylee Anthony died, I think nearly everyone in the world would agree that this is seriously abnormal behavior for a woman who's just lost a child. And that bizarre behavior would become a central theme of the prosecutor's theory in this case. So, George and Cindy Anthony pick up Casey's car on July 15, 2008, from the impound lot. They bring the car home and discover that there is a wretched odor coming from the trunk. They open the trunk and find a bag of garbage. At this point, Cindy gets upset that she hasn't seen her granddaughter in just about a month. So she tracks Casey Anthony down and makes Casey come home. Only, Kaylee is not with Casey. 
Casey tells her mother that she also hasn't seen Kaylee for a month, and she believes that a babysitter named Zeneda Fernandez-Gonzalez has kidnapped Kaylee. At this point, Cindy Anthony calls 911 and reports that Kaylee is missing. Despite claiming that she hadn't seen her daughter for an entire month, Casey Anthony has never called 911. The police meet with Casey Anthony the following day, and the first thing she does is lie about her employment and where this babysitter, Zeneda Fernandez-Gonzalez, lives. In fact, the police do locate an individual by the name of Zeneda Fernandez-Gonzalez. She does exist, but she's never met Casey or Kaylee Anthony before. Casey is then arrested for child neglect, making false statements, and obstructing a police investigation. Amazingly, at her initial appearance on the child neglect case, the judge denies her any bail and sends her to jail. She hires a well-known lawyer named Jose Baez to represent her. Now, this is already a fairly strange set of facts, but at this point, things really start to go off the rails. The area around the Anthony home in Orlando is wooded, and on August 11th, 2008, a meter reader by the name of Ray Cronk stumbles upon a suspicious bag in the woods close to the Anthony house. He calls the tip line and leaves a message about the bag, but nobody from the sheriff's office calls him back on that day. The following day, Cronk calls the tip line again. This time, two officers from the sheriff's department meet him at the woods. Cronk directs them to where he says he found the bag, and the officers proceed to argue with Kronk about wasting their time. They make a cursory search, claim they find nothing, and leave the area. Fast forward now to December 11, 2008. Kronk calls the tip line a third time, and some sources I reviewed even claim that it was the fourth time. At this point, a different officer comes and meets him at the woods and discovers a child's remains in a trash bag exactly where Kronk said he found a bag. The medical examiner confirms that the bones belonged to Kaylee Anthony and ruled the death a homicide. Between the August and December calls by Ray Kronk, the crazy train just kept on rolling. The entire Anthony family refuses to take polygraph tests, and Casey Anthony actually turns herself into law enforcement on a completely unrelated check fraud and theft case. Zeneda Fernandez-Gonzalez has also filed a defamation suit against Casey Anthony. Now, ignoring the minor fraud case, the real charges against Casey Anthony are ultimately bumped up from child neglect to first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, and four counts of providing false information to the police. Despite initially claiming that they would not be seeking the death penalty, ultimately, the Florida prosecutors elect that they will seek the death penalty for Casey Anthony. A quick word about the death penalty in Florida. Murder can be punished by the death penalty in Florida if any one of 16 potential aggravating factors to the murder apply. Factor number 12 is that the victim is less than 12 years old. So there was no question in this case that Casey Anthony was death penalty eligible if she was convicted of murder. Since 1976, 99 people have been executed by the state of Florida. Currently, there are around 340 people on Florida's death row. 
prior to 2014, so the time period that we're talking about in this case, if a criminal defendant was convicted, the jury could, by a simple majority, recommend to the judge that the defendant receive the death penalty. And then ultimately, the judge would make the determination, keeping in mind the recommendation of the jury. After tweaking the mechanics a bit, Florida has settled on a new system where there has to be a unanimous jury decision to impose the death penalty. That decision is then binding. It's up to the jury now, not the judge. And even if one juror votes against the death penalty, the sentence becomes life imprisonment instead. Back to Casey Anthony's trial. The lead prosecutor on the case was Linda Drain Burdick. And Jose Baez, who took on the case when it was simply a child neglect and missing persons matter, remained with Casey Anthony for the entire three years of the case. The initial judge on the case, the Honorable Stan Strickland, had to step down after it had surfaced that he had inappropriate conversations with a writer named Dave Neckel, who was blogging about the case at the time. Judge Belvin Perry Jr. came in and remained the judge for the rest of the pretrial actions and the trial itself. Because of the extensive coverage of every facet of this case in the Orlando area, while the trial itself was held in Orlando, the actual jurors who decided the case were brought in from Pinellas County, Florida, which is the Clearwater area. The idea was that the prospective jury pool in Orlando was so saturated with information that it probably already had preconceived ideas about the case from reading so many stories about this ongoing investigation. The trial began on May 24, 2011. The prosecution's theme was that Casey Anthony was a 22-year-old party girl who just wanted to have fun with her life and was sick of the responsibilities of parenthood. They claimed she killed Kaylee so she would be free to enjoy living her life the way she wanted to. Linda Burdick claimed that Casey Anthony chloroformed her own daughter and duct taped her mouth and nose shut, left her in the trunk of her car for days before disposing of her body in the woods near George and Cindy Anthony's house. In the meantime, Burdick argued, Casey Anthony wasted no time getting back to her wild life, which the nightclub photos and tattoo did tend to point to. Jose Baez then delivered the defense narrative. He told the jury that Kaylee Anthony had drowned in George and Cindy's pool on June 16, 2008. That it had been an accident. And George Anthony, Baez claimed, had found the body and became worried that Casey would go to jail for the rest of her life for child neglect. Baez claimed that George decided to cover up Kaylee's death with Casey's help. But Baez had an impossible issue to deal with. If Casey Anthony didn't intentionally kill her daughter, but didn't know that she was dead in an accident, why was she partying? Why was she getting tattoos that say beautiful life in Italian? Why wasn't she grieving and distraught? Wasn't this her daughter? Baez knew that if he didn't address this right away in his opening statement, this trial would be over as quickly as it began. But what could he possibly say which would justify Casey Anthony's behavior? Casey Anthony, Baez asserts, was hiding her pain the way she always did, by pretending nothing was wrong. She had always done this because she had been sexually abused as a child by her father, George Anthony, starting when she was just eight years old. 
Baez also hinted that Casey's brother Lee had also engaged in some misconduct with her. Because of this abuse, Baez claimed Casey did not know how to process or handle pain and grief and simply pretended it didn't exist. The first witness that the prosecution called was then George Anthony, who quickly denied ever abusing his daughter. When all was said and done, around 400 items were entered into evidence. Burdick and her team called 59 witnesses, while Bias himself called 47 of his own. Casey Anthony was not one of them and did not testify at her trial. Obviously, we can't discuss all of the testimony that came out, but we can address some of the critical information that these witnesses testified to. One star witness for the prosecution was Canadian software developer and computer investigator John Dennis Bradley. Bradley had designed a program which he claimed would allow him to recover a deleted search history from Casey Anthony's computer from right before Kaylee died. He testified that his program revealed that Casey Anthony had searched the website SciSpot.com for the word chloroform 84 times in that short time period. Now, this seems like pretty damning evidence. But on June 21st, roughly a month into the trial, Bradley discovers that his software has a slight flaw. And instead of 84 searches for chloroform, there was in fact only one instance where chloroform was searched and it returned a result of the use of the chloroform in the 19th century. A little less than a week later, on June 27th, the prosecution finally shares this information with the defense, who immediately requests that the judge instruct the jury about this new information. Burdick objects, and the judge decides not to do anything for the time being. The misconception is permitted to remain. Instead, the prosecution later claimed that they had planned to give the jury the correct information while they were deliberating, but the jury came to a verdict so quickly that they didn't have a chance. Now, had Casey Anthony actually been convicted in this case, this would have been point number one on the appeal. But obviously, it doesn't come to that. Still, it is outrageous that the jury was allowed to remain with the misconception that Casey Anthony had searched for chloroform 84 times when the prosecution made that such a central tenet of their theory of the case, knowing full well as of June 21st that that simply was not true. The prosecution also called a University of Florida professor named Michael Warren. Warren presented the jury with an animation. It started with a photo of Casey Anthony alive, and then it superimposed a photo of a decomposed skull and another photo with duct tape. All of these images were then slowly brought together on the screen until the skull covered Kaylee's head and the duct tape covered Kaylee's, or the skull's, mouth and nose. It was a gruesome and horrifying combination. The duct tape in this case also presented another substantial hurdle for Baez. If Kaylee Anthony had accidentally drowned in George and Cindy's pool, why did they need duct tape? To answer this question, Baez had Cindy Anthony testify that when the family pets had passed away, they would bury them in plastic garbage bags and then use duct tape to seal the openings. 
Baez was then able to get testimony from the medical examiner's office that the initial placement of the duct tape was actually unclear, and the tape may have been used to close the bag originally. Baez also called his own forensic examiner, who performed a second autopsy on Kaylee Anthony's body. Dr. Werner Spitz called the original autopsy shoddy and said he found no indication that Kaylee was murdered. Dr. Spitz also cast doubt on the idea that the duct tape was put over Kaylee's nose and mouth, claiming that since no DNA evidence was found on the duct tape, it must have been put on that location after decomposition. Had duct tape been placed on the skin to suffocate Kaylee, Dr. Spitz opined, it definitely would have had DNA residue on it. For the defense, Jose Baez called one of the volunteers who was helping to search for Kaylee, a woman by the name of Crystal Holloway. Holloway testified that she'd been having an affair with George Anthony, Casey's father, and that George had confided in her shortly after Kaylee died that it had been an accident that snowballed out of control. George Anthony was then again called to the stand where he denied the affair. Towards the end of the trial, on June 25th, the defense filed a surprise motion for a hearing on whether Casey Anthony was actually mentally competent to continue to stand trial. The defense claimed that a privileged communication received by their legal team from Anthony caused them to seriously doubt whether she was able to continue to assist in her own defense. The trial was put on hold for several days while Anthony was evaluated and then resumed when it was finally determined that she was fit. The trial lasted six long, grueling weeks, and at the end, the parties gave their closing arguments. The prosecution hammered down their theme that Casey Anthony was essentially a party girl who just wanted to live unencumbered. She was sick of taking care of a toddler and could no longer handle being forced to stay at home at nights, not being able to party or engage in hottest body competitions or to get spur-of-the-moment tattoos, or the ability to simply disappear for days or weeks at a time. Jeff Ashton, one of the co-prosecutors on the case, gave the initial summation for the prosecution. Florida follows the same procedure as federal court in that the prosecutor gives his summation first, which is followed by the defense summation, and then the prosecutor is afforded some time to have the last word and address or rebut some of the points made by the defense attorney. Ashton went through how seamlessly Anthony would lie and pointed out that when the police were interviewing her for the very first time, the day following Cindy Anthony's 911 call, she told the police she worked at Universal Studios, which was a lie. When the police insisted on seeing her office, she actually led them around the grounds for hours trying to talk them out of seeing her office before ultimately admitting that she had been fired years before. Ashton then recounted that Anthony had told police immediately after that that Kaylee had been kidnapped by Zeneda Fernandez-Gonzalez, who Anthony claimed had been a nanny or babysitter, another claim that was quickly debunked as untrue. The prosecution claimed that Casey stuck to her lies until it was categorically proven that they weren't true, and at that point, she would come clean about that lie and move on to lying about something else. Ashton mocked the defense that Kaylee had drowned, telling the jury that nobody has ever tried to make an accident look like murder before. 
He talked about the forensics, the duct tape on the mouth and nose, the stench coming from the trunk of the car, the autopsy. He appealed directly to the jurors' emotions by holding up the garbage bag the remains were found in and telling the jury that this was Kaylee's coffin. He then showed the jury a Winnie the Pooh blanket that was found with the bag in the woods. Then it was Baez's turn. He, too, stuck to his narrative. He argued that this was a tragic accident that had spiraled out of control. He showed the jury photographs of Kaylee being able to open the back door to the Anthony house, as well as the gate surrounding the pool, and reiterated the testimony that Kaylee was not strong enough to lower the pool ladder into the water, which would have allowed her to climb out. Despite a ruling by Judge Belvin Perry that Baez was not able to claim that Casey Anthony was sexually abused by family members in his summation, a claim that the judge said lacked any corroboration whatsoever, Baez still made several obvious references to family dysfunction or her troubled family history. Once the summations concluded, the judge read the jury this description of reasonable doubt. And you'll recall that in any criminal case in the United States, the prosecutor is required to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So this is how this judge described it. Quote, a reasonable doubt is not a mere possible doubt, a speculative, imaginary, or forced doubt. Such a doubt must not influence you to return a verdict of not guilty if you have an abiding conviction of guilt. On the other hand, if, after carefully considering, comparing, and weighing all the evidence, there is not an abiding conviction of guilt, or if, having a conviction, it is one which is not stable, but one which wavers and vacillates, then the charge is not proved beyond every reasonable doubt, and you must find the defendant not guilty because the doubt is reasonable. End quote. Those of you who listened to the last episode on the George Zimmerman trial will remember that I used the phrase abiding certainty when describing how many judges characterize certainty of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. As you just heard, the judge in this trial used very similar language. The jury began their deliberations on July 4th, 2011, and on July 5th, Casey Anthony was acquitted of murder and of child abuse, but convicted of four counts of lying to the police. She was sentenced to time served, and on appeal, she actually managed to have two of the four counts reversed. Predictably, the verdict hit the media and social media like a bombshell. Chances are, if you were born before 1995, you have some memory of hearing that Casey Anthony was found not guilty and the responses that it generated all over the country. Now, years after the verdict, in 2016, Casey Anthony was going through a bankruptcy proceeding. Jose Baez's private investigator during the murder trial, a man by the name of Dominic Casey, filed an affidavit in the bankruptcy case with allegations of impropriety so shocking they fit right in with the whole situation. Private investigator Casey claimed in a sworn statement that during his tenure working on the murder case in 2008 to 2011, 
he personally witnessed Jose Baez and Casey Anthony negotiating the use of sexual favors for legal work. He even went so far as to claim he personally witnessed Casey Anthony running through Baez's office naked at one point. Needless to say, Baez categorically denied that such an agreement ever existed. Now, the only thing I can really say on this subject is that I've met and spoken with Jose Baez. I've spoken to him about judges and cases after the El Chapo trial when he had the next trial in front of that very same judge. And while I can't claim to know him very well, he's always struck me as a moral and ethical lawyer. And these claims, to me, seem far more like a publicity stunt designed to drum up some private investigator business rather than an honest account of real lawyer misconduct. In summation, one has to wonder if it's ever possible to convict someone of murder in the state of Florida. Did the jury really believe that Kaylee Anthony drowned and Casey and George Anthony covered up a tragic accident? Countless pundits and commentators have already weighed in on Burdick and Baez, what went right and what went wrong. A few of the jurors made public statements about their deliberations in the time after the verdict was delivered. Almost unanimously, they felt sick about Casey Anthony's actions, but felt that the state simply hadn't proved murder. There's a difference between being innocent and being not guilty. Being found not guilty does not mean that you did not commit the crime. It means that the jury feels the state failed to adequately prove you committed the crime. One of the prosecutors on the case stated, quote, We're disappointed in the verdict because we know the facts and we've put in absolutely every piece of evidence that existed, end quote. If you listen to the episode on George Zimmerman, you know that I think that trial strategy is extremely foolish. And one of the juror statements confirmed that. That juror said that there was a real struggle amid all of the evidence introduced to focus on what was really important. Had Burdick's team streamlined the case, focused exclusively on the evidence that supported their narrative, instead of throwing literally every piece of evidence at the jury to see what would stick, the outcome of this case may well have been different. I think the volume of evidence, the fatigue associated with the length of this trial, the expectations that juries now have because of shows like CSI and NCIS, where evidence collection teams always manage to find DNA and fingerprints, as well as the difficulty in accepting a motive that a mother would kill her own child because she wanted to party, all work to Jose Bias's favor. But a hard look at the circumstantial evidence in this case is certainly enough to twist your gut instincts about what really happened. So this wraps up our discussion on the state of Florida versus Casey Anthony. I hope you were able to get a sense of just how, at every turn, the facts of this case just got more and more outlandish. As always, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. And if you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at insummationpodcast at gmail.com or find me on my law firm's website, gottliebjaney.com. Until next time, I'm Paul Townsend. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope that you'll come back for more.